would invite you, if you would, to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And as you turn, we're going to put that passage up in just a little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Uh, I'll small talk before you, um, or as you get there. Um, I don't know if you know, but uh, we have a man in our church named Richard Petty. How cool is that, huh? Not the, not the guy that always makes left turns, left turn only Richard Petty, not him, but a younger man named Richard Petty who is an Auburn fan who spent most of the week enticing me on Twitter to place a bet with him. Isn't that just crazy? The devil is just appears in many different forms, doesn't he? And he was just enticing me using social media to draw me out to, to bet with him. And of course, y'all know preachers don't bet, or at least most preachers don't bet. But I took him up on it, and Richard uh, was going to... Um, he was going to have to wear today in church full Mississippi State garb on the front row. And Richard texts me, and oh, if I would have lost, which, you know, wasn't really within the realm of possibility, then uh, I would never want to distract in worship by wearing uh, orange and blue, but I would have to have done that next week at lunch on the grounds right after church. So I'd have had to change my wardrobe and all Auburn gear. That would have uh, been uh, fun, wouldn't it? But Richard texts me late last night and said he and his crew are staying up there and uh, he'll try to catch, catch me next week. Isn't that lame? So if you know Richard, uh, call him out. I'll give you a cell number at the end of the service. Um, really good young man. But, um, but anyway, Hell State, Hotty Toddy, Hobby Lobby, Roly Poly, all that stuff. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, let's read the passage. Um, see, I actually get in trouble for not mentioning football. Some of you ride me so hard. So I just try to please and placate everybody. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, the words of the the philosopher, the teacher, the preacher, uh, Solomon. There is an evil that I've seen, here's that phrase, under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind, a, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a a grievous evil if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life and years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not at all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be, has already been named and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good teacher, some of you know, repeats himself. Uh, repetition aids learning. Sometimes we need to be reminded as much as we need to be instructed. And we get that in Ecclesiastes. I'm saying probably every week that the phrase of vanity of vanities uh, is mentioned uh, some 38 times in these 12 chapters. Now here's what I want you to do, you note takers, if you have your Bible open or journal or something. Uh, look in verse 3 and circle that word soul. The word soul 
is a very important word in the Bible. The word soul is a very important word in our day as well, isn't it? When someone has gone, uh, we say, God rest his soul. When we put a small child down at, uh, at night in a, in a dark room, we teach them a prayer, right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Is it just me or is that, pretty, uh, is that a scary prayer to teach a child alone in a dark room, right? We, we have soul music. The Blues Brothers sang, I'm a soul man. Uh, we have soul music of guys like um, Otis Redding and James Brown, uh, folks like that. Um, well, Aretha Franklin is known as what? The queen of soul. Uh, Kid Rock sang about a rebel soul, an artist that's fading, I guess, these days. Jewel sang, who will save my soul? We have soul food. With my family out of town this weekend, I met a friend and had pizza, a slice of pizza yesterday at Soul Shine. Uh, a woman named Lori uh, tried recently to sell her soul on eBay for $2,000. Turns out that eBay has a no soul selling policy. The universal distress signal, SOS, I understand stands for save our souls. And Jesus taught, he, in fact, he asked a question. He, he taught by asking a question. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but what? But he forfeits his own soul. And I used to think that that just means heaven and hell, but it, it's more than that. Uh, to, to have a lost soul is to not have a center, a healthy center that organizes and guides life. Uh, if my soul is not healthy, I'm like a car without a steering wheel. I'm a crash waiting to happen. When Jesus asked this question about our soul, Solomon lays it out in verse 3. But how does he describe the soul later in that verse? If you have the passage in front of you, he says it's what? It's a soul that's not satisfied. A soul not satisfied. Here is the, the Hebrew word for soul. It's nefesh. And then that Hebrew word, it is um, translated in some passages as mouth, throat, stomach. Does that seem odd? But the soul is so many times over, both Old and New Testament, described as a, a longing, a wishing, a hunger, and a thirst, a, an emptiness, a hollowness to it. Solomon says, in this passage, that the soul is not satisfied. With what? With abundance. Could it be possible that you could be materially wealthy but spiritually impoverished? Could, could it be? I mean, work with me or just nod with me. Let me know that some of you are still awake. Is that a possibility? Have you ever known somebody like that that has a lot of stuff but they're not necessarily full of joy? They're, they're not a, a satisfied person. You, you think you can tune, on in, uh, tune into any biographies and hear stories of somebody that had a meteoric rise to fame and wealth and privilege and power and all the stuff that we think will bring satisfaction, yet they are, they're on the edge? You, you think you could find any stories like that? The soul's not satisfied. Consider, if you would, Hebrews 6, 19, one of my favorite stretches of Scripture in a great passage. 
We have this. Who's we? Those of us who have aligned them, their lives in God's grace. We have this as a secure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. The writer of Hebrews, there's some debate about who it is, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you get access. It's, a, it's front row access. It's, it's backstage privilege. This is what you get because of what Jesus has done for you. And it's described as what? An anchor of the soul. Now contrast this with something mentioned by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6, 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads. And that's an expression. Stand by the roads and look. He's saying to you that there are options in life. There are options that you you have choices. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And what are you going to find? Say it, church. Rest for your souls. You circled that word. That's what we're talking about. Rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes um, we think that the only way to make progress is to go forward with what's novel and what's new. Have you ever discovered the value in things old, the things that are ancient? I had a meeting this week with some elderly people. And I had an idea, and they had an idea, and we kind of talked and, and debated a little bit. And they were reminding me of the importance of ancient things. And to the extent that those ancient things are ancient truths or ancient paths, I agree with them. Sometimes where the good way is and what was said long ago. Psalm 19, I believe in verse 6, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. It does what? It refreshes the soul. It was spoken a long time ago, but the things that God spoke so long ago can ring true in your life today. Stand at the crossroads, at the roads, and look, and then consider the ancient way. Don't follow the fads. Don't get caught up in the latest trends necessarily, but follow the ancient way. The soul, we say often, is the, it's the deepest part of you. It, it's who you really are, who you're created to be. And Solomon, in talking about our soul, this very important word, he says the soul is not satisfied. Now let's hone in. This is the crux of it, Ecclesiastes 6.9. We've read all 12 verses in this sixth chapter, but let's look at this right here. I would love for you to really circle this and maybe walk away with this idea because we're going we're gonna to draw a contrast. Now, let me tell you, I'm not even sure if Susan knows this because sometimes we don't talk about all of our schedule together. You, you do that. Some of you are married. You miss it a little bit. Two, two ships. Yeah. But uh, today at 2 o'clock, I'm going to my first ever gender reveal party. How cool is that? If you're my age or older, you don't even know what that is, do you? There's a a young couple in in our church family, and today at a party, they're going to reveal the gender of their baby. Now, we did that back in the day. The gender reveal party was called the birth in the hospital, right? (laughs) That's the Christian way of doing things, right? The ancient path, right? Is it a boy or a girl? Let's see, okay? Hey, woo. 
blue. It's about, I mean, what happens? I'm, I'm about to find out today what happens at a gender reveal party. And here's what I'm thinking. I don't want to steal the thunder, but like it's 50-50, right? Here's what's going to happen today. It's going to be a boy, and we're going to shout, or it's going to be a girl, and we're going to shout, right? I mean, that's what's going to happen. They're, they're two very different objects, right? Objects was a bad word, but, you know, I'm just <laughs> speaking on my feet here. Two different entities, two different living things that have value in God's sight. From the moment of conception, by the way, and up to the gender reveal and the birth and all through their days. That's my stance on that, by the way, just clearing up that word object. But am, am I right about this? I mean, there's, there's two choices here, and we're going to be excited about both, or some of us will fake our excitement about one or the other, right? But two different uh, genders who, in one respect, are very different, right? One from Venus, one from Mars. You, you've read those books. There's a proliferation of them out there. But, but one is sugar and spice and everything nice, and then there's the gender where it's not so flattering, that song. Whoever wrote that song or poem, it certainly wasn't a man, by the way. But um, two choices, but in the end, you celebrate both. Both are good. You, you feel me? You get that? Uh, boy or girl, we're going to celebrate with this couple. In fact, we're a... We're a refurbishing a children's area just for them right down the hall. But here's a choice, and it's a choice that is very different, uh, very different outcomes. And in only one of these, in one of these reveals of your life and mine, will there be rejoicing and light and life, vibrancy and vitality. Here's the contrast. Side of the eyes, wondering of the eyes. Note takers, another good phrase to circle, verses, put up verses. You've been very sports-minded this weekend all fall. A lot of folks aren't even here, they're so sports-minded, but put that VS. Here is uh, side of the eyes versus what? Wondering of the appetite. And the side of the eyes is, is, is what's he saying? Solomon is saying what you have. The sight of the eyes is what you already possess. You can see it. You have it. It's in your life. You contrast that with the wondering of the appetite. It's what you don't have. And there's probably a good chance because there's so many people uh, in this room, there's a very good chance that a lot of minds have been drifting, even, even, in, even in the midst of a sermon, uh, mind drifting and maybe going to what? to the wondering of the appetite, to what you don't have. We've all played some games growing up, or we at least know about them. There's a game called I Spy, and there's a game called Where's Waldo? And it's almost like Solomon's given us a, an invitation to play, to play I Spy. What, what do you see? What do you see in your life, the sight of your eyes? Do you see his blessings? Are you enjoying what God has given you? Are you playing some game of where's Waldo and you're looking for something that's so elusive amidst the other abundance in your life? Do you get that? A man and a woman, both 65 years old, um, had just retired and they were really planning their, uh, their, the rain, remainder of their living years, and they were walking on the beach, and they, lo and behold, uh, came across a lamp in the sand, and they, they picked up that lamp after they dusted it off, and whoosh, out pops a genie. 
And the genie is just obviously relieved that she has been released into life. She's been trapped in this lamp, this container for a hundred plus years. She tells them this and she says, you each have a wish. And to the woman, she said, what is your one wish? And the woman said, well, this is wonderful. I wish for a, a cabana, a beautiful cabana right here at Oceanside that we can spend the re remaining retirement years of our lives and she said, your wish, the genie said to her, your wish is my command. And whoosh, there appeared the beautiful oceanfront cabana with waders and palm trees and a buffet of gourmet food. She looked to the man and said, what is your one wish? And he wasn't even looking at his wife or the genie. He was looking around at all the other women on the beach, younger women that were, uh, many of them, bikini clad. And as he was looking at those women, he said to the genie, I wish to have a wife that I was 30 years older than. And whoosh, immediately he was 95 years old. <laughs> the silly story gives us a serious truth. Be careful what you wish for. Have you heard that? Be, be very careful what you wish for. And this, this soul that aches within you, and it does. You know, some people, some hyper-religious types... Some holy rollers, some people that are fuddy-duddies, they, they like to, to teach, they, they like to subtract desire from the Christian experience and vocabulary. And I, I'm borrowing from the great theologian, the pastor, John Piper, when he said, God is most glorified when you and I are most satisfied. And God gives us desires. The, the goal in life is not to subjugate them, not to deny those desires, but to understand, God creates desires and sin distorts them. Matt and Lisa are a young couple. They're surveying a shady backyard. They, they're trying to determine the ideal location for a swing set. They're about to have their first child in three months. And they just bought their first home. And the two words, our home, gets them giddy. For four years of their marriage, they were crammed in a tiny little apartment. And they were able to save enough money, amassed enough money to put a down payment on a home that they uh, discovered, a two-bedroom in a real quaint neighborhood. It was a house that they were learning to love, giddy and excited. It was a nice home. Structure was sound, but it was definitely dated. The carpet was tired. The kitchen pleaded for remodeling. The landscaping was very neglected. But they were excited. Uh, Matt knew that he had a few months to transform this dark wood paneled den into a cheery, bright baby room. And with great joy, they talked and made plans. They, they dreamed together. And Friday night rolls around and Matt and Lisa, though they had a lot to do, they knew they had a, a double date. They weren't sure how many date nights they would get after the next few months. And they were double dating with a couple that they hadn't seen since their college graduation. Matt and Lisa drive to the friend's house. They followed the GPS, the female voice that led them into a, a nice neighborhood with manicured landscapes very, very big houses. 
cars that were parked outside the garage were much nicer than the one they drove. Matt and Lisa uh, enter into the, the foyer of their friend's home, and they're greeted, and after the initial hugs and greetings, they're given a quick tour. Not so quick for Matt and Lisa. The home was so spacious and inviting. They had those shiny heart of pine floors and granite countertops and marble things, stainless steel appliances, some of the latest features. The table was set with nice food. and They looked out back at the cobblestone patio with really nice furniture that wasn't purchased, Matt and Lisa both thought, at a garage sale. And they had a good night with their friends, and as they drove back home, they pulled into the driveway, and they felt very poor. Neither one of them spoke anything, but they thought. They had this, this kind of inward suspicion that God was cheating them, that life wasn't as fair as they had thought. Now, let me ask you, much more down-to-earth illustration than a retired couple at the beach finding a genie in a bottle. You, you get that? And Matt and Lisa, let me ask you the question. Uh, what, what happened? What, what heart shift happened for them to go from deep gratitude to subtle resentment? Do you know? It's that word, comparison. And it's brutal. You see, bigger than a gender reveal option... There is the sight of the eyes, I spy, and the wondering of the appetite, where's Waldo? And you and I have a choice before us, the remainder of our days, we can enroll in the school of contentment, or we can bear the burden of the curse of more. And in this passage, Solomon uses that word, appetite. The word appetite. Look, look what Philippians, look what Paul would say all those years later in Philippians 3.19. He would say this. Uh, I, we, I chose the ESV. That's my preferred version. And it uses the word belly. Y'all wanted to stay away from that word, didn't you, after all the eating you've done this weekend? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's saying that we have an appetite. And the thing about an appetite, have you noticed that there's something within us? It, it, it's a reality that we all possess, but all of us have to do what with that appetite? Think about a meal that you eat. See, the analogy is great between physical and spiritual. How many times have you bellied up to the bar, to use that word from the ESV, how many times have you bellied up to the bar and you've eaten your hearts full, your belly full, and you have proclaimed something along the lines of, whew, I'm not going to eat again ever. And then three hours later, you're standing in front of the fridge, right? With a little Satan on your shoulder. But that's the thing about our appetite, yours and mine. It has to be managed. It's not a problem that we instantly solve, right? I was at a, a restaurant this week, and there was a, a squeaky door. And I'd been in that restaurant before, and I'd heard the squeaky door before. But someone got up and fixed the door. That's, that's what we would call a problem that you solve. Uh, we like that, especially men. We like projects. Just let me do this. We solve that problem. But an appetite is not a problem that you solve. 
It's a reality that you manage in your life, and it just it comes back at you. Have you noticed that? That's that appetite that we have. And it's described as something deep in the soul. The deepest part of you has a, a longing, a wishing, a craving for what? What do you wish for? What do you, what do you long for? What are your cravings? Food, water, air, sex, respect, recognition, applause, accomplishment. And have you noticed that when you receive any of those, accomplish any of those to any measure, that quickly they're in your rearview mirror? And you're wanting what? You're wanting more. Because that's the biggest word with appetite. It screams more. And it whispers to us, I know this in my own life, it whispers to us incessantly, and it always says now, it never says later. For to live, to enroll in the school of contentment, and let me say this about the school of contentment, we looked at Philippians 3.19, but read Philippians 4, you'll see Paul said this, very important, sometimes you can't miss the small things in scripture, but Paul said what? I have learned to be content. Do you know this passage in Philippians 4? I've had a lot, uh, I've had a little, but I, in all things, I have learned the secret of contentment. I have learned. It's, it's not something you're born in this world. Contentment is not natural. You agree with that? Let me say contentment is not my natural thing. The wondering of my appetite it seems to be the, my natural tendency. And I'm not alone. The wandering of the appetite, not the, not the side of the eyes. Uh, you're born into this world uh, with the color hair that you have and the color eyes. And some of these things are predetermined traits. You're not born into the world with contentment as if it's hair or eye color. It's something that we have to learn. Well, who do we learn from? We're learning from Solomon during the, these weeks in the fall. But there's no better one to learn from than our Savior. Consider Jesus in Matthew 10, 28 to 30. Some of you know it's among my most favorite passages. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The elders and I were talking a few weeks ago and we brought out the fact that that's the only time Jesus ever uses the word easy. Probably important if you're wanting an easy road. If you, if you want life to be a comfortable recliner, cable television, a Mountain Dew and a Moon Pie, right? If that's what you're looking for. Jesus only uses the word easy one time in all of the gospel narratives. And he, let's, let's draw a distinction. He uh, never said your life will be easy. In fact, he told his disciples, the men who were closest to him, he said that in this world you're going to have trouble. The world, it hates me. It's going to hate you. I send you out as, anybody know this? I send you out as what? Sheep among wolves. How do sheep go out among wolves? Very carefully, right? Does, does anybody want that assignment? So you and I, we cannot read Scripture 
And if you're struggling today or you feel called to something noble, to, to mission, and by the way, we're all in the ministry. If you, if you follow Christ, we're all called to the greater good and to be involved in something bigger than ourselves, to lock arms with like-minded people, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. And no assignment that Christ calls us to, he never promises that it will be easy. But what does he say? The one time he uses the word easy, he says what? My yoke is easy. Let's put it this way about the soul. Easy is a soul word not a circumstance word. Do you get that? And let me say this. If you want easy circumstances, you will find a hard life at almost every turn. But if you aim at an easy soul, you will find the grace and the strength that you need to face any circumstance. Man, I believe that. I believe it. And I sit down with some of you. I circle up or or sit somewhere with some of you. And I wish I could just fast forward the tape in in your life because a lot of you are younger than me. I mean, look around. We're a young church, aren't we? But, man, I've seen God's faithfulness in my life. I probably don't talk about it enough. Some of the things that I've been through that were hard, that was far from easy. And what did I want in the moment? I wanted an easy circumstance. And Jesus wants to teach me about easiness of soul. Did you come to our last Fondren Covered where we gave $5,000 to House of Hope? And we, we sang the Doobie Brothers songs, right? That's pretty questionable for a church crowd, isn't it? And then we sang the Eagles. And one of the songs, can you remember who did it? Peaceful, easy feeling. Who did that, Tover? Jay Johns. Jay Johns did it. Jay Johns sang peaceful, easy feeling. And though that's sung by the Eagles, I think that is a real principle in the life of Christ. Think about Jesus and the easy soul that he lived. Look at some of these traits of Christ, the way that he lived. If we um, have that list, he prayed. He had a circle of close friends, the 12 who went through life with him. They shared everything. Uh, I I say this this morning. People underestimate the role of friendship in Jesus' life. He engaged in regular corporate worship at synagogue. He fed his mind with scripture. He enjoyed creation, mountain, garden, lake. He took long walks. He welcomed children, and he blessed them. And the last one I love to emphasize, he enjoyed partying with non-religious types. Leave that up for a moment. The easy soul. And nobody's, nobody's going, woo, that's new stuff. That's new material, right? But the easy soul. I, I, I want to learn from Jesus. That's the invitation. If you grow weary and you have fatigue, and your soul is not satisfied, I can do what? I can come to him. That means I can repent. I can move away from my way to manage life, and I can come to him, and he promises me a yoke that's easy, a burden that is light for all kind of grace amidst whatever difficulty I'm going to have as a sheep among wolves. But here's how Jesus lived, and that invites me. That's, to me, such a magnet to my own life. How about you? What what an invitation. And sometimes we think of disciplines as something that holds us down, that doesn't give us rest or freedom, but the opposite is true. Living our life according to Christ and learning from Him. We have an appetite. We have an appetite because we have a soul, and in that aching, that craving, the longing, the waiting, the wishing, Amidst the hunger and thirst and emptiness, the dissatisfaction of life under the sun, Jesus gives us an invitation that we could find rest and that 
our faith in him would be an anchor to our soul. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And I want to really pray a prayer over you. Because I know that there is soul fatigue. Our whole series in Ecclesiastes, we were calling, we're asking the question, are you satisfied? And a good number of you are circling up in groups and talking about this, this very thing. Life under the sun is very empty. But learning life a different way, the way of our Savior, invites great abundance and great reward. I, I believe it. And let me say this about Jesus. His, the soul rest that he gives, he experienced. And some of you know, if you were here last Sunday, we celebrated baptism. Five people got in the water and were baptized. Five people stood before this church family. Two dads, uh, Will and Kevin, joined with their kids and, and baptized their kids along with me. And we said, bear with Christ and raise to walk in newness of life. We're doing it again uh, a week from today. And for some of you, that's your next step. And Jesus was baptized. He was baptized. He was fully immersed, by the way, in the river. And when he was fully immersed in the river, some of you know the beautiful picture that God gives us, that the Father spoke, the heavens were open. And what did Jesus hear? Do you know this? He heard the words of his Father. Does anybody know what was said? Let's be uncomfortable. Shout it out if you know. You could be in the balcony. Just scream. Scream aloud if you know. This is my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, why was that spoken? Why was that said? Why was it recorded for us? Because here was the man, the most revolutionary figure who's ever lived. History uh, is amply clear about that. And before he accomplished, ever accomplished anything, he learned his identity. Jesus taught us at his baptism, acceptance before accomplishment. And some of you have soul fatigue because you haven't heard that acceptance. Man, I, I don't know what kind of daddy issues you got, but we got a bunch of them, don't we? We got a bunch of daddy issues. We've got a bunch of family of origin issues. And a lot of us are living without the acceptance, and we rush headlong into accomplishment. And the very baptism of Jesus, he's saying, acceptance before accomplishment, know your identity. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what's the one day in your life that's repeatedly celebrated? The one day where you're just celebrated for sheer existence. Your birthday. That was easy, wasn't it? Your birthday. Now, what did you accomplish on your birthday? Nothing. Brent's on the front row. He said breathing. Okay, we'll give him that. But, man, you accomplished nothing. You were the fruit. You were the product. But you accomplished nothing in your birthday. I mean, you're, we celebrate your birthday. Happy birthday. What would you do? Man, I just didn't die. You know, I'm just living. I'm just existing. I didn't die this year. That's what I didn't do. And on your birthday, think about when you were born. You were never at a higher level of being a nuisance to people than on your birthday. You were at your smallest, your slimiest, your dumbest, your smallest, your clumsiest. You, you, you were never more 
coordinated. This is true for most of y'all. Uh, this is, you were never less coordinated than the day that you were born. But we celebrate birthdays, right? Because it's like this grace. That's what's beautiful about birthdays. I've got one later this month. But anyway, uh, it's what's beautiful about birthdays. It's saying you exist. Hey, I'm glad there's a you. You exist. And if you live to be 100, how cool is this? The president of the United States will send you a birthday card. Did you even know that? Everybody that, has a, that celebrates 100 years, the president, so you, you, you can't go to Boca Raton and find an old guy, a really old guy wearing black socks and shorts playing shuffleboard going, eh, I didn't get a birthday card from the president. I'm 102, you know. That you can't find that. You get a birthday card. You get mentioned by, who is it, Willard Scott or somebody? Happy 100th. Acceptance before accomplishment. And the fatigue, the fatigue soul, it comes because the soul is a compendium of all you are. We experience fatigue in many ways. There's, there's body fatigue. And in body fatigue, you stay up too late, you wake up too early, you're living on caffeine, you got coffee and a donut for energy in the morning, you got a Red Bull in late afternoon, you're throwing back some Diet Coke late at night. I mean, this is it's not a way to live, and that, that type of lifestyle over time, even if you're a specimen now, it will catch up with you, and it will experience fatigue. There's body fatigue, and there's mental fatigue. Uh, multiple screens clamor for our attention. We all carry around a mental list in our mind of Aaron that we haven't run, things we haven't done, emails that we haven't answered. Mental fatigue is big on us. There's body fatigue, mental fatigue. There's the will, fatigue of the will. There's so many choices that we have. Uh, a lot of our college students are on fall break today, but do you know that college students, some of them choose a double major not because they want to study two fields, but because they just can't say no to something, right? There's just a lot of choices that you and I have, and it just it gives us fatigue. And it all lands on our soul. It's why there's a beauty to the 23rd Psalm that it's a truth not just for funerals. But David said what? You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside still waters. You refresh my soul. Let me pray over you. For a moment, I want to ask you to apply yourself where you are to as best you can, just eliminate distractions, and even to the point where you're not um, so mindful of the person next to you, even if you are um, snuggled up next to them. Or if there's somebody else in your life, that they're not in the room, but they're just predominant in your life. Just not them right now, but make this you. A truly a, a, a vertical thing. You see, this word soul is very important in Scripture because it really is who we are. It's who you are. And I wonder when I was walking this morning and praying and thinking about today and that John Piper quote came to mind. That God is most glorified when, when I am most satisfied. And that kind of puts things in a different realm for me. Maybe for you as well. 
a life of misguided desires, a belly that's filling itself on cotton candy and junk food and stuff bought at the fair. It's going to fill you for a moment but leave you terribly empty. Good taste, no nutrition. But what about today thinking about how God gets the glory when you find contentment, when you enroll in the school of contentment? God, I pray now for everyone here today. I pray, Lord, this contrast that Solomon gives us in Ecclesiastes 6, 9, this this side of the eyes versus the wandering of the appetite. And for the one who wants to enroll in the school of contentment, who wants to learn from Christ, is often squeezed into the mold of the world. Like a a child playing with Play-Doh, we get uh, molded into the world. And repeatedly, our mind goes to the trap of comparison. And because of the wandering of our appetites, our lives aren't living up to the honor and glory that we could bring you. We're living, filling our bellies with salt, sugar, fat, that of this world. Lord, I pray that we would do soul work, that we would find soul rest and soul freedom by learning to come to you, by learning to receive acceptance like a birthday celebration, like Jesus, Lord. I pray for these people. I pray for all who are willing in this room today to hear the voice of the Father say over them, This is my daughter. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And no matter the parental deficit, no matter the betrayal, no matter the hurt or pain, Lord, your truth would roll over them, roll over us as waves, and it would be a really beautiful thing. And for some who are on the very precipice of accomplishment, who is just right there, they're about to accomplish something, about to win a title or or something good is going to happen. And there's this thought that now then I will be satisfied without acceptance from you. It's just something that will be in the rearview mirror and the ache of the appetite will say more. Lord, I pray for our elders and deacons and staff. And I pray for our young and old, our marrieds, our singles. I pray for our church family. We lock arms on Sunday morning and many times throughout the week in groups and mentoring relationships. But Lord, there's some things like this where we've got to get alone and get with you and hear from you. Lord, I pray more of us would. In Jesus we pray. Amen. We invite you to stand. We're going to sing and
Um, many Sundays we uh, invite you to pray, uh, pray while you sing, to pray in the very place that you are, or to, uh, to take a few steps. For some of you, it's a few steps. For some of you, it could be 100. But to walk down and to be prayed for, uh, I'll turn off my microphone, my wife Susan, Gary, our associate pastor, are down front. We'd love the honor to pray for some of you over anything uh, in your life. <clears throat> Pride might prevent you from doing that, but don't let it. Don't let it. Follow your soul and the deepest part of you. And to have um, somebody to come around you to pray for you is a real powerful thing. I, I hit a real low spot. I, I had a real weakness flare up in my life and had uh, some friends pray over me recently. You know, that's the strongest thing I can do to be prayed for. And I would uh, invite some of you today in just a few moments. Um, we reserve this time and we'd love to be able to pray uh, pray for you today. Let's do that as we sing. <clears throat>